What companies deserve your hard-earned dollar? Which would you want to work for? How can you know if they share your values? Just ask us. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks who really means business in supporting workers, customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. We measure progress, track success, and help them be better. When you see the Just Capital seal, you know what's real because just business is better business. Visit justcapital.com to learn who makes your dollar count. This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS. I saw this in my Chicago Tribune, and I'm afraid that I probably missed, and you probably did too, a potential $397 settlement check from Facebook. That was sent out last year to, I guess, nearly 1.3 million Illinois Facebook users. I'm among those. I look at all my old Buddy Rich and Maynard Ferguson videos on Facebook. I use uh, Instagram for my golf videos, and I use Twitter for my news feed. Uh, but I'm guessing I could have been part of this, and now I'm probably going to miss out on a second payment of $30.61 because I didn't pay attention. Let's stop there with Robert. Let's start there with Robert Chanick. He writes on business for the Chicago Tribune and a returning guest here at WLS. Robert, did all the Facebook users here in Illinois have the opportunity to join this lawsuit and we missed out? Uh, a lot of people missed out. A lot of people got their checks. Uh, the uh, lawsuit, there was something like 7 million Illinois Facebook users who could have potentially qualified and when they uh, cut off the uh, initial time to file a claim, I think the total was about almost 1.4 million uh, that uh, filed what they call valid claims for their uh, for their settlement. And that, that was cut off by the by a long time ago. I think it was November 2020 was uh, when you had a say I'm in. Yeah, November 2020. So uh, you know, 1.4 million users uh, signed up. Um, and or excuse me, signed up at, with a valid claim, and they were issued checks. Uh, and what we just reported was that, unfortunately, something like one in eight or one in ten—I got to do my math better—never uh, cashed their check. And uh, well, I never so filled out the did, application for the check. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure I was part. I could have been part of it. I didn't, I don't think I've been harmed by Facebook. What's the basis of the lawsuit that's been going on for years? Well, it, it, it's based on the the Illinois Biometric Privacy Act, which is one of the stricter acts in the country. It was passed in 2008, and it requires companies to get permission before they use things like facial recognition, fingerprint scans to identify customers, employees. And if you remember, Facebook used to have a thing where it would recognize your face and photos and make it easier to uh, link to them and find them online. So sure. that, that's something that... You know, it was meant to be uh, sort of a benefit for Facebook users, but they it turned out uh, through this lawsuit in particular that it was deemed uh, a violation of Illinois law because it, it didn't expressly require your consent to get that uh, service. I noticed uh, that the, the lawsuit, it was $650 million, the biometric privacy settlement, $650 million. But only five hundred and fifty million will be distributed when it's all said and done. Let me guess: a hundred million dollars to the attorneys. Yep, that's it. That's a good guess. The uh, ninety-seven point five million attorneys' fees, <laughs> uh, 
uh, oh, wow. awards and a few other, I'm sure, odds and ends uh, expenses. And, and in fact, there was a little uh, delay in people getting their checks because the ruling was in 2021 where the judge, yeah, February 2021, this this case, which started in Cook County, ended up in California. And that's quite a little side story in itself as a federal lawsuit, even though it involved Illinois. Um, but the bottom line is uh, judge said, you know, uh, agree to this settlement um, that Facebook and the, uh, you know, the, the plaintiffs came to. He, the judge actually upped the settlement from like 550 to 650, if I remember. He felt it wasn't strong enough. And there was, um, a, as you said, and I just want to repeat this because, look, I, I, don't, I don't think I've been harmed by Facebook. I didn't pay any attention to this. Did it, did it arrive in the mail to me or did well, yeah. I see it online? This is eight years ago, obviously. And then yeah. out of the, there was 110,000 Illinois residents who did file the claim, received the first check, almost $400, <laughs> but just didn't cash it. That's the bottom line. Yeah, they, you know, the check, if you got a check, some people got electronic transfers, you know, the Zelle payments um, initially. But as they went through the process, you know, there was this pool. If they, if they didn't successfully get the electronic uh, payment, then they would they cut a check to those people. So, so bottom line is it was basically uncashed checks. And that's why and, if, you're, if you initially received the $400 check, now you because the other people didn't cash their checks, you get another thirty dollar check. Right. If you were lucky and smart enough to get it, recognize it, and deposit it, then you got a little bonus check uh, coming if you haven't gotten it already. Um, and uh, so basically, the ones who participated are getting rewarded again. And you know, it, it ended up being something like forty three, forty four million dollars worth of these checks, and they look like a little postcard. You know, I'm sure it'd be easy to get stuck in your mailbox or. Uh, Throwing out his junk mail. Exactly. You know, if you're not thinking about it or looking for it, I don't know what happened to those 110,000 fellow Illinois Facebook users who got the check and didn't cash it. But uh, that that they're, you know, not doing it created this this pool. And they were by, you know, the court order, they had to distribute this money. So they went Mm -hmm. back to the... the There's got to be a lot of people out there who, uh, you know... Gin the system and have multiple identities and cash multiple checks too. And I'm sure this is a revenue stream that it's a living for some people. Yeah, and 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 I think the interesting thing here is it's it's a big check. I mean, if you ever got a, you know, four hundred dollars is four hundred dollars exactly. Yeah, yeah. And with the two checks, it's four hundred and twenty-eight bucks now. So, I you know I am disgusted at myself now. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm sure, you know, not that I, I feel, I don't feel like Facebook owes me anything, right? But mm-hmm. still, I, I hate to miss the $500 sitting right there on the table. Yeah, it was, it was if, you, if you went through the process, it was relatively, uh, you know, an, an easy process, other than trying to make sure you didn't lose that little card when it came with the check in it. I'll be more careful, thanks to your reporting, Robert. Thank you. You bet. I'll All be, give me a little heads up on the next one, will you, please? <laughs> well, well, I was writing about it, and, and, and in fact, we were writing about it in process. You got you got to read the Tribune. We uh, do, we were we telling do. people about it. I wrote a <laughs> bunch of them. Read, read it carefully. There's, there's, sometimes it pays, you know. I, I subscribe to. <laughs> let's see, one, two, three, four local publications. One, two, three, four, plus uh, one, two, three, four national papers. So, you know, I, I have uh, several papers every day to go through, page by page. Yeah, so I hear you. Know. you. I hear you. It, it, it's unfortunately easy to miss 
these stories. But we did write about it for a while while it was in process. I got to pay pay more attention, John. Pay more attention, John. Focus, focus. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Chanik. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Even though I feel poorly about myself, I appreciate your time. Take care. Take care. Robert Chanik from uh, the Chicago Tribune. Pay attention to what the man writes. We all lost $500 for no reason. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. If you're... Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. If you sacrifice your dream for the sake of satisfying someone else, that can often lead to ongoing resentment, which then poisons a relationship subtly, slowly, but it does. And if he doesn't want to let you down, then your dreams matter. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. If you're a regular listener to this program, you know how much I admire writers. Putting pen to paper or paper into typewriter. I love columnists, I love reporters, and we feature them each and every day on this program. Because they can put a cogent thought together, a beginning, a middle, and an end. I uh, found this book, The Noise of Typewriters, Remembering Journalism. It's not long. I'm only about 75 pages uh, into this book. I think it's terrific. And if you admire journalists... And journalism, well, what used to be journalism, you'll want to pick this up. Let's welcome Lance Morrow back to uh, WDLS. He spent 40 years as an essayist and a writer and a critic at Time Magazine. He is the author of The Noise of Typewriters, Remembering Journalism. Mr. Morrow, welcome to Chicago Radio, sir. How are you? Thank you, John. Uh, Nice of you to have me. I appreciate it. I want to read uh, the blurb that uh, George Will, excuse me, the George Will, wrote about your book. This history and memoir by one of journalism's most admired practitioners is packed with anecdotes and vignettes that are as illuminating as they are entertaining. It is a reminder of the way the news business and the nation were not that long ago. And I was only about five pages into this, Mr. Morrow, when I came across this, and you wrote this. Politics and culture would migrate into the country of myth with its hallucinations and hysterias. The floating world of a trillion screens. There might come to be no agreed reality at all in the future. How problematic is that? And I guess, how do we determine old journalism, facts, from the propaganda that is uh, prevalent today? Well, you know, I don't idealize the old journalism, but I think now we are in a... uh in a very strange place as far as journalism is concerned because of the instability of fact. I mean, just the, it is much harder to, uh, uh, to, to grasp hold to trust. In fact, trust, trust is a big word in all of this. And, uh, um, the, the electronics and other factors have, given us a uh, journalism in the 21st century uh, that is in many essentials very different from the journalism that I'm writing about in this book. Uh, as I say, the old journalism certainly was not perfect, but uh, there's a whole new ball game. Uh, it's a whole new America. It's a whole new uh, information uh, environment and so on. Uh, so it's a, it's a very very different thing. There's a there's a uh, well there are many reasons for it, but uh, well it sells. 
you know, look what goes on nowadays. You know, you have one network that is all anti-Trump and another network that is, uh, in my opinion, you know, just kind of it's all propaganda at this point. You wrote in this book a number of times that old journalism was rough and tumble and sleazy at times. I know you started out with Carl Bernstein at the Washington Star. Then you moved over uh, many years. You were at, uh, of course, uh, uh, Time magazine with Walter Isaacson. How would they handle this environment nowadays? Well, um, you know, Carl Bernstein, who's still a friend of mine, uh, was at CNN. I think he's, uh, I'm not sure whether he's, he's still there, but uh, uh, he is in the that uh, business now uh, and, and as a uh, contributor on CNN. But uh, Walter Isaacson got out of it, and uh, he's, he's a professor down in New Orleans at, and uh, is writing books. But um, well, people make out in the in the new in the new journalism. But it it uh, it there's, there's a funny quality. I blame it a lot on on a lack of leadership, editorial leadership. I think that uh, uh, well, there there are many causes of it. But a failure of editorial leadership means that you have. Um, reporters who are running a little bit wild in there and allowing their own personal prejudices to uh, to get into the stories. And then if they band together and they will, if there's a story that they don't like or at, at a publishing company, if there's a, a book that the publisher plans to publish that they don't like, you will have a revolution, uh, you know, in petitions and all kinds of think uh, going on and and I think this is very bad for for the business of journalism but a, a lot of the what's happened is that the the media have changed the people really don't know today or they can't don't quite remember how different uh, the media were in the um, in the 20, in the previous generation the magazines for example were tremendously important because there was no internet. There was no social. There was no social media. Television news was relatively rudimentary, and uh, radio news was relatively rudimentary. And so, magazines were. Uh, there were no national newspapers. So, magazines were very, very important. Lance Morrow is here. He spent forty years as an essayist and a critic at Time Magazine. I still think the essay you wrote. I think the day of September 11th, or maybe the day right after that is still profound, and I reference that from time to time. You know, look, newspapers are in the business of selling newspapers, and cable news is in the business of keeping eyes on the cable news channel through the commercials. We all know we're all in business. That being said, you know, who was the most consequential journalist of the 20th century? Even the man that developed and ran time, he was in the business of selling magazines, and is it is it essentially the same business? It just moves much quicker nowadays with a lot less fact checking. Um, well, that's a very broad question. The person you're talking about is Henry Luce, of course. And uh, Luce, the the great thing about Luce was that he was able to preside over a very successful business at the same time that he was presiding over a very successful and multifaceted uh, empire of magazines. And they were very original magazines. Time, Fortune, Life magazine, 
uh, and others. And uh, he was a he was a real genius. I I, I talk about him a lot in the um, in the book because I think he was the most uh, I call him the most consequential journalist of the 20th century. Do you uh, think do you, you know Henry Lewis when he published he had to stand behind it? Because it was slanderous or libelous, they were coming after him and the writers and the organization. You know, the Internet now is just, uh, it's a wasteland. Uh, it's just a sewer a lot of the times. Do you think yeah, that the, yeah. the social media platforms should some way, shape, manner, or form, and they say they can't begin to do this, but they should be responsible for what people post on their platforms? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's really the Wild West. It's a free-for-all. And... Uh, it's, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is because you have to balance the freedom of expression and so on with uh, with the, uh, the the need to uh, somehow to bring this under control because part of the problem today is that anybody can say anything. Everybody has got one of these iPhones in the palm of their hand. <laughs> yeah. and There's no editors, no publishers. Everybody's a star. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> And you can say anything. Yeah, and well, that's a problem. It, yeah. So you, you know, Ben Hecht, I just I just went back and reread a portion of his memoir, A Child of the Century, which I think was published in the mid '60s. But he started here in Chicago, and like it was a rough and tumble business. He wrote in a lot of sleaze in the old newspaper business, but he always had to be truthful in what he wrote in the newspapers. And he said he saved the fiction for the screen uh, writing he did out yeah. in Hollywood. He differentiated between the two of those. And I'm not sure that happens anymore. Do you miss the yeah. sound or the feel or the smell of a typewriter? I do. Yeah. I mean, it's very convenient to have a computer and to do all the things that a computer can do. But yeah, I do. I do miss typewriters. I miss the. Um, I miss the atmosphere of the old newsroom, and uh, uh, you know, I'm very fond of journalists, and I, I enjoy their company and so on. Uh, although I've known some. <laughs> bad characters but, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. uh, but you know it was a lot of fun among other things it was a it was a uh, it was a great thing for a young person to do uh, it was it was really fun uh, Bernstein and I had a tremendous amount of just sheer fun yeah uh, just raising hell and carrying on and everything Chicago is a fantastic uh, old-time newspaper town of course the uh, the, uh, what was it called? What was it? The uh, Chicago News Bureau, the the one that I yes. think, uh, yeah, the, 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 so many know, writers that, came out of there. That was yeah, that was the real rough stuff, and and the but you had to be right. You make a good point. You had to uh, the, the city editor would chop your head off if you if you uh, if you got a, a name wrong or a spelling wrong or a fact wrong. You know, you you really had to be very accurate and you didn't go around using the first person singular and you didn't go around tossing uh, a lot of adjectives uh, into a story or adverbs you you stuck to the to the hard hard facts yeah it certainly has changed the history of journalism yeah. i mean it's a journalism has shaped this country uh, the last hundred years and then some it's shaped it, it's distorted it, and it's proved decisive in so many outcomes throughout history. I think this is a terrific book, The Noise of Typewriters. It's a thin volume. It, the essays are, are just great. I'm glad there's an index because I like to look for names I recognize. And Mr. Morrill, I've read you uh, for years and years. As I mentioned, I think all my listeners should go back and 
uh, read your essay after 9-11. It's one of the best about retribution and feeling anger and, uh, and get ready because uh, if you want to fight, we'll give you one. Uh, and I, uh, nice having you on the program. I wish you nothing but the best. This is John Howell Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. We've all watched the mob movies where the feds have the federal witness relocation program. And a lot of Chicagoans, uh, you know, uh, who are involved in business here wind up in sunnier climes. A lot of them in Arizona. But anyway, do you realize eight months since the long-neglected initiative, our, our state witness protection program, eight months since the initial funding, and it's significant, not a single witness has been relocated. Only about $67,000 of the $30 million approved by the Illinois General Assembly last spring has been spent. I was stunned at the amount of money that we have in this program. Now, it's been years and years that we've had the program on the books, but we've never funded it. We've been It's been out there for nine years, and we finally funded it. Uh, Pritzker funded it. So let's start there with uh, Jeremy Gorner. He's a reporter for the Tribune. He covers Illinois state government from the state house in Springfield. Joining us here on WLS. Jamie, thanks uh, for your time. Jeremy, pardon me. Why the nine-year delay to begin with? Well, uh, John, I mean, I think that's anybody's guess. I mean, let's look at what happened in the last nine years, right? I mean, this, this was, this um, fund was codified into law in 2013. A lot was going on back then. Uh, uh, then Governor Quinn, um, he made pensions and, you know, the unfunded liabilities a, pr- a priority during his time as governor. And then after Quinn left, you had the rounder years where there was the, um, you know, two plus year or, or about two year uh, long uh, budget impasse where he and uh, Speaker Madigan were feuding nonstop. And, um, of course, the state's finances were in even more disarray. And then you have the first three years of the Pritzker administration. It just never it just never got done. Of course, COVID was going it was, you know, it was the early days of the pandemic. Of course, the governor had other priorities there. And then last year, um, you know, it's um, this is when the governor in his budget address in 2022 proposed 20 million. And then when the budget passed a few months later, they ended up securing 30 million. Um, and of course, last year, you know, last it was an year election, was an election year. year. Yeah. Right. So right. it was an election and he, year. And the GOP's main thrust was obviously this is Darren Bailey and the rest of the Republicans. Crime, 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 crime. So Pritzker proposed 20 million dollars for this. We have $30 million available now, and yet you drew a comparison in your article. California, a state that has, what, three times the population of Illinois, their budget for witness relocation is a minuscule $2.4 million. It seems like an extraordinary amount of money, $30 million here in Illinois. Will it be put to use? That's what will be interesting. I, you know, you know, John, I, I, I guarantee you, I think that there's probably not a state's attorney in any of the 102 counties in Illinois who wouldn't want money for witness protection, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. It would help prosecutors. It would help um, police very much. But, you know, the fact is, is that this, these kinds of services are used pretty infrequently. I mean, there's got to be, there's usually a high bar when it comes to giving someone witness protection. There's got to be really a clear and present danger that someone's life is in danger 
And, you know, as one person pointed out in my story, former top ranking Chicago police official, traditionally, they wouldn't just give witness protection services to someone who's like a circumstantial witness in a case. It would be someone who's like an eyewitness who actually saw, for instance, a shooter commit a crime. I mean, there's usually been a high bar. However, you know, the flip side to that is you never know. Maybe with $30 million, hmm. as you know, one person said in this, you know, this didn't go in the story, that could maybe lower the bar and give more people protection than, you know, than the state has or than these police departments have seen before. And it could entice more people to cooperate with the police. There's always that hope. But $30 million, yes. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, California, a state, you know, more than three times the size of Chicago. You have L.A. and the Los Angeles metropolitan area. You have San Francisco. I mean, these are cities that don't have the problems with violence that Chicago does, but still, I mean, have had problems with violence. And you would think that's kind of a good benchmark because, you know, $2 million, $2.4 million, like you kind of pointed out, pales in comparison to 30. Yeah, $30 million here in Illinois for witness protection. And I guess that can involve uh, a number of things, whether it's relocation or just uh, living expenses while they await to testify at a trial. And you go into detail in your piece about that. Jeremy Gorner is here, reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He covers Illinois state government from the state house uh, in Springfield. So witness protection, the program that we all see in the movies, that's a federal undertaking. It's been around since RICO laws were put into effect. It was primarily focused for mob informants. Uh, they have dealt with about 19,000 people since the 1970s. Do we have any success stories here in Illinois from the 67-plus thousand that's been spent recently or even the pilot program that was uh, put into place under Governor Edgar? Any success stories? So the 67,000, um, just so you know, is really is, is really gone to employee-related expenses. Basically, the the state agency that's tasked with administering this program is still in the planning stages of um, setting up the program, basically, trying to figure out who's eligible for the program. They need to staff the program. And I mean, according to state officials and, you know, the governor's office, this takes time. You know, they've only had this money for like eight months, right? Mm. Um, Which is why for the second consecutive year, when the governor proposed his budget uh, last month for the 2024 fiscal year, he's proposed another $30 million. So my point, so they've been busy setting up the program this year. That's where the 67,000 and change comes. I think the true test will be next year where you see really how this money has been put to use. But, you know, at the same time, this has been on the books for 10 years. <laughs> so we're, we're, all, like- we're, we're all for, you know, knocking down the crime, whether it's here, the Collar Counties, downstate, wherever, but $30 million annually seems like a tremendous amount of money for witness relocation or witness support. And what, you know, let's go back to the state's attorneys. Let's, uh, Kim Fox, Robert Berlin, DuPage, James Glasgow, Will, are they ready to dip into this fund? Do, do they think they can get their hands on it too? I would assume so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they. this is something that, um, you know, especially with, um, uh, Berlin and Glasgow were all for. I mean, Glasgow went as far to say is that, you know, maybe this money could help relocate victims of domestic violence. He he told me in the interview that he wanted his uh, chief of uh, investigations and in domestic violence cases to reach out to the state to inquire about this funding once it's available. But to go to your previous question about success stories, 
going back to the Edgar administration in the 90s, that pilot program where there was only $32,000 that was spent roughly or about $33,000 on that in, in, um, in, in, in a single year for that program, according to an evaluation from, of, of that program in 1997, there were some success stories of whoever, whoever benefited from this money, um, you know, it was helped out greatly according to this evaluation. The problem is, is that not a lot of prosecutors, not a lot of people really knew that the program existed. Yeah. So that's what the state is saying this time around. They've used that 97, that, that evaluation from 97 to inform this new um, program that they've set up for the 30 million to try to increase awareness in the law enforcement community that it exists. How do the downstate state's attorneys get noticed over Kim Fox? I guess there's a provision in this legislation. No more than 50% of the $30 million can go to one county. Right. I mean, everyone's going to have a chance to, um, everyone's going to have their chance basically to apply for this funding, whether you're a big county or a small county. But even like the, um, the head of the Illinois State's Attorneys Association told me that he sees this, while this is a positive um, fund, you know, this is a good idea, this is a, well, this, he thinks this is a good idea. Um, he could see larger counties benefiting from this the most. Counties that actually have problems with violence, counties like Cook, you know, some issues in the Collar counties, counties like in Peoria, Champaign, and areas of the Metro East near St. Louis. Yeah. Those are the counties that might benefit from this more than some of the, the other smaller counties that you're Well, whenever there's $30 million sitting in the pot in Springfield, believe me, everybody is going to come knocking at the door to grab their piece. Right. <laughs> Jeremy, it's a fascinating uh, piece in the Tribune. Everybody should read it. Have you ever read the book? Rick Kogan wrote this, co-wrote it, Everybody Pays, about the Chicago oh, wow. mob and the retrial of uh, Harry Ailman, the uh, the assassin. I know the book. I remember reading part of it years ago, yes. Uh, he wrote it with uh, Maury Posley, another uh, former Tribune reporter, yes. And, uh, you I know, the book. guy that witnessed Harry Ailman knock off a, a bookie or something, I can't remember, he came forward, this is the Fed's program, and it basically ruined his life. Yeah, I, I mean, that was, again, you know, obviously different time. And that's, it's, it's, it's interesting you bring up that example, because when I was telling people about this story, when, I, when people think of witness protection, they think of the federal program that you're referring to, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, so, yeah, I mean, in and, and, and that program, it's a little more sophisticated, because when they relocate you, they don't just move you from like one neighborhood to the other. They move you to other parts of the country. They can, they can, <laughs> they can move you wherever they want, really. I mean, I, I, they, they don't say where they move you, but they could also, they give you like different documentation, new identities. Yeah. And then, you know, and, if, and in addition to that, you know. Half of the uh, of Chicago residents in Arizona right. have brand new names. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, thank you very much. Uh, again, go check this out at the Tribune website. Jeremy Gorner, thank you for your time. Much appreciated, sir. Thanks, John. Always great to be on your show. And you, you mentioned whenever you move me, I asked you once, and I'm going to tell you again, I don't want to go any place that's cold. I want to go to Arizona. It's nice, and the golfing is just great. I'm sorry I mentioned your name. I just didn't know you were in this witness protection thing, brother. I never would have said your name on TV, man. <laughs> You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. 
Get an inside look at Hollywood with Michael Rosenbaum. Let's get inside of my buddy, Kamal Nanjiani. When you talk about Eternals and it wasn't the response that you were hoping, how did that affect you? Marvel thought that we'd be going on a wave of raves, you know, and it wasn't true. The reviews were really bad. And you were aware of it while you were on tour? Yeah, I was too aware of it. And so very intentionally, I did start counseling. Emily says that I do have trauma from it. Inside of you with Michael Rosenbaum. Wherever you listen. Years ago, I used to have an almost daily feature called Scare in the Air. Because as the uh, cell phones uh, became more readily available, everybody had the camera, everybody's recording the videos, you would see jackasses on flights day in and day out. And it became so normal. Nothing, it didn't matter anymore. It's like, well, of course, every flight's going to have a moron. Uh, and it's going to be recorded and posted on social media. Uh, but this uh, jackass uh, was significant. L.A. to Boston. He's uh, from the suburbs of Boston. Uh, and this happened, uh, this happened, and not only did he try to open the emergency exit door during the flight, but he also apparently tried to stab a flight attendant. You can't do that. He's 33 years old. Francisco Torres, you've probably heard about this. I caught a woman on CNN this morning. Uh, after 9 in the morning, and she was explaining exactly what this guy did, and it was uh, significant. She, of course, says it's always the quiet one. The first five hours of the flight was uneventful, um, quiet, normal flight. I was on with my husband and my daughter, um, and, you know, about 30 minutes before we were landing, I heard, you know, a commotion. He was getting louder, and he just started rambling about... You know, his father's Dracula, the Nazis, um, just a lot of rambling. Okay, so we, we see that. Rambling's not going to not gonna hurt anybody, but then he got up out of his seat. And, and there were some pastors that tried to come to uh, help the flight attendants, and then it got rough. And if you've not seen the video, go take a look at it. It's a brouhaha, and then some. Thank goodness this United crew protected the first-class passengers. The United crew um, was amazing. They blocked the first class entrance which led to the cockpit uh the flight attendants were there many men from the plane um, jumped up followed him um, tackled him to the ground and there were probably about four to six of them that sat on top of him to restrain him Uh, the flight crew you know immediately had zip ties to zip tie his feet and his arms um he was still screaming hogtied this guy (laughs) this guy was i don't know who knows what's going on uh but um they had to, like in a, in a wrestling match, they had to tag guys in and out of the ring to help. So they put the zip ties on him, and usually, usually, usually that, that's the end of it. He actually escaped from the zip ties at one point? He did. I think he was, he was so out of control. Um, I don't know if they didn't get him on tight enough. Um, I don't know exactly what happened, if he busted out of them or if he just, you know, wiggled out of them. Um, but he was still very combative for the beginning part. Once we knew that there were only you know, one additional set of zip ties left. People were sending up their belts um, to help restrain him. At least they made it to Logan Airport in Boston. They did not have to divert the flight. That's the worst. Because once you got, you have the man subdued, uh, just, just finish the flight. They were, they were probably past Albany and Syracuse at that point. So they went on uh, to Boston. Uh, Mr. Uh, Torres is charged with one count of interference and attempting uh, to interfere with the flight uh, crew. Uh, also using a dangerous weapon. Uh, he's due back in court on Thursday. If convicted, he faces up to life 
in prison and a fine of up to a quarter million dollars. And even after Ziv tied, he was uh, still noisy, so they did have a sock available. When he um, stormed to the front and he was on the ground, um, he was the last, it was probably 30 minutes that they had him down there. You know, towards the end, probably five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, he was quiet. Um, he was screaming a lot before that. Got to have some duct tape alongside the zip ties. Uh, the TSA would not say if there was an air marshal on that flight. I'm going to guess that there was not an air marshal. John Howell, Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. If you sacrifice your dream for the sake of satisfying someone else, that can often lead to ongoing resentment, which then poisons a relationship subtly, slowly, but it does. And if he doesn't want to let you down, then your dreams matter. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.